0: And welcome to The Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. Our backdrop for today's podcast is the Institute for Fiscal Studies in London, Britain's leading independent economic research unit. I'm here to meet the IFS Director of the last 13 years, economist Paul Johnson, whose dulcet tones you may recognise from programmes like today on BBC Radio 4. Whenever news organisations need an independent voice on the economy, Paul is on most producers' speed dials. He writes a column for The Times, and I dare say his 2022 was one of his busiest ever, given the amount of economic uncertainty in Britain. Cost of living crisis, soaring inflation, industrial action, not to mention three prime ministers in as many months and four chancellors in four months. And in the last few days, the sacking of Conservative Party chairman Nadim Zahawi over his tax affairs. Paul, it's great to finally meet you here at the IFS in your offices. Before we get stuck in, Can you just explain the role of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and and what happens here?
1: Well, we don't have an official role. We are a a charity, a, a think tank, a research institute founded essentially by accident just over 50 years ago. We are a group of people doing research in what we call the economics of public policy. What does that mean? We work on public finances, tax, pensions, welfare, Education, health, inequality, the labor market, those sorts of issues. All of my colleagues spend all of their time analyzing huge data sets, applying very complex statistical techniques to that. But we do two things. We, first of all, publish a lot of that in the world's top academic journals. But unlike I'm afraid most people who do that kind of work, we also try and engage in the public debate in terms of what's actually happening and what's mattering at the moment. So we see our role as bringing that deep analysis to important issues of public policy. We try and we are completely independent. We have no political affiliation in any direction and it's terribly important to us that that's how we do things, that we are fully based on the evidence and the facts and the research We're not in any way uh, beholden to any particular political point of view or indeed anything else. So that means over time we've built ourselves a role, I think, I hope, in beginning to hold some politicians to account.
0: Does it frustrate you though, Paul, when you see two politicians, so let's take last year and Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss at the hostings and saying what if they were in power they would do with our economy? Is it frustrating from an independent standpoint that sometimes politicians are saying what the public want to hear, to win votes, rather than what's actually best for our country?
1: I think politics is increasingly difficult at the moment. There's a whole series of things that one could do over the long term to improve the economy, improve people's living standards, but often they're politically unpopular and actually there are genuine trade-offs here. So Relaxing planning policy, for example, an absolute no brainer if what you're focused on is economic growth and well being. Membership of the European single market, a complete no brainer if what you're focused on is economic well being and, and growth. But of course, there are other things that matter politically. And the frustrating thing about politicians is they're very rarely willing to talk to you about those trade offs. It's almost never the case that there's one thing that you could do which makes everyone better off and is right on every possible set of bases. So think about the most controversial thing, Brexit. Yes, if you want control over immigration from the European Union, then we have to leave the European Union. But there is an economic cost to that. And it's not the case that you get both things, both economic growth and control over immigration, at the same time. Of course, neither side's willing to talk about that. The same is true of things like relaxing planning rules or building more homes and roads and things, all of which will be good for us in terms of our overall economic growth, because some people, people living near motorways, people who would have homes built behind their homes, will be made worse off. And very often politicians end up trying to make out they're doing the best for both, and they can't.
0: Yes, there has to be trade-offs, doesn't there? And I think if I was sitting in some position of power, I'd be straight in here and sitting down and absorbing that research and absorbing your findings and trying to pick my way through what would be the best for the country. Because we are, I think, in one of the biggest messes financially that we've been in for years. And I would imagine that we're going to see more people living in poverty with the high energy prices, the wages, the high cost of inflation. What's your prediction, Paul? Is this here to stay? Is this hardship here to stay for a long time, do you think? Is it going to take a long time to right the economic ship, if you like?
1: We've been in a a bit of a hole for quite a long time. And one of the reasons, I think, that the current situation feels so difficult is that Incomes as a whole have grown very little since 2008. So we've had 15 years of very little income growth and almost no earnings growth. Probably the worst 15 years for earnings growth since the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, that really? just to give you a sense of scale. Oh my goodness. So that's why things feel difficult at the moment when real incomes are going down. In other words, inflation is going, prices are rising more quickly than earnings at the moment. So that's after a long period of things not going terribly well, after we got used to for a long, long time. Earnings growing by 1% or 2% a year, every year faster than prices. So that's why things feel hard at the moment when you've got this big increase in energy prices, inflation at a 40-year high at over 10%. That makes life difficult for government. We see that with the strikes and public sector pay it makes it difficult for people in work. Average earnings are rising at 7%. But prices are rising at 10%. This is the highest rate of earnings growth for a very, very long time. And yet we're getting worse off. That all feels terribly difficult. I mean, I should say one note of positivity is that, yes, we have been in a hole for the last 10, 15 years, but it is a hole on top of a mountain. If you look over the edge of that hole, incomes today are vastly higher for almost everybody than they were. I was born in the 1960s. Incomes today are two and a half, three times higher than they were back then, even for people on the lowest incomes. They're certainly no lower, and actually for nearly all, they're significantly higher than they were back then. So standard of living, quality of housing in general uh, is much better than it was. And the average temperature in the house today is about like 18 or 19. In the winter, it was 12 back in 1970. The vast majority of houses have central heating today. Very few had back then. And we've got computers and iPads and all those sorts of things. So, so there is positive stuff here we do need to understand that relative to most of history we're actually a lot better off and we're living 10 years longer on average than we were back in the 1960s so we shouldn't forget context here but 15 years of that income growth biggest falls in income over these couple of years possibly than we've had any time over the last 70 years real problems because it's energy and food prices are going up particularly affecting people on the lowest income so yes at the moment we've got a really big problem
0: You've seen many ups and downs, I'm sure, throughout your career in the economy. But how would you describe 2022? I mean, what was it like from your perspective, Paul? I suspect your phone barely stopped ringing for you to make appearances on various news programs. Obviously, you've got your column. How would you sum up 2022 and what was going on in that rather crazy year?
1: It was extraordinary, wasn't it? From an economic point of view, the extraordinary bit was really in that short period in the autumn when we had the so-called mini budget with this extraordinary forty-five billion pounds of tax cuts, with no economic forecast, no sense that this would require anything on changes in spending, and a sort of genuine belief it seemed that this would just be good for the economy. Now, obviously, you know, in some senses, lower taxes are better than high taxes, but taxes buy something; they buy public services, and if you're not bringing the taxes in, then you need to be honest and say, well, we're going to bring in less in tax. We need to do less on the spending side, which is something that this trust and quasi-quarting were not, were explicitly not willing to do. And indeed, it was them, don't forget, who put in place this, uh, this huge energy support package. So spending vast amounts of money, as well as reducing track taxes very dramatically. And that was quite extraordinary. I can't think, I mean, there hasn't been a similar moment to that in terms of what was actually done in certainly in my professional lifetime. I mean, you could argue that if you look back to 1972, 1973, there was a sort of similar kind of effort from then Chancellor Tony Barber to have big tax cuts to support the economy. And that ended disastrously in the vast inflation of the 1970s. We have had politicians, of course, promise similar sorts of things. If you look back, Let's be honest, at uh, the manifestos of Labour in 2017 and 2019, promising tens, if not hundreds of billions of additional spending without equivalent plausible tax rises. And politicians throughout history, as it were, have promised things. They very rarely tried to deliver them, which is why I think everyone's a little bit surprised. I mean, actually, what Liz Truss did in that September budget was almost exactly what she said she would do when she was standing for the Conservative Party leadership. So in some sense, we shouldn't be taken by surprise, but I think we all were, because I don't think any of us quite thought she would actually go through and do it.
0: Weren't you quoted at the time when she was saying what she would do if she were in power as saying that that would be economic, you didn't use the word suicide, but you said it would be a disaster for the economy if she followed through on what she was promising pre-becoming Prime Minister for, I think, 44 days, wasn't it?
1: I was phoned by the by a newspaper when I was on holiday, on a a Sunday morning on holiday. And in a a moment of excessive relaxation, when I was asked what would happen if she actually implemented the policy, she said, I said, I think the quote is exactly, she would crash the public finances. And of course, that got translated onto the front page as IFS boss says, trust will crash the economy. And I thought, oh God, this is absolutely not what I should be saying. This is not the way that we talk. But it turned out to be exactly true. (laughs) Absolutely. She did crash the public finances. And as a result, certainly if it hadn't been undone pretty quickly, would have been disastrous for the economy.
0: I'm just wondering how much damage did that mini budget cause? Have we recovered from that freefall of markets going into freefall and the value of the pound plummeting, etc?
1: Yes, that has mostly been undone. A lot of the uh, losses that we saw with the pound, that, that's been undone. The in- interest rates in the UK are now more in line with those in other countries. So in terms of the immediate sort of impact, a lot of that has been undone. I think the much harder to measure impact is, is in terms of thinking about the confidence in the British economy. One thing I think economists talk about far too little is politics. So actually, the fundamental building block for a successful economy is some kind of functioning polity. It's politics which are broadly stable and predictable. And we haven't had that here essentially since the Brexit referendum. So no one has known who's going to be in charge, what policies they're going to follow. So on top of the uncertainty around trade with the European Union, big companies investing in the UK are going to be looking at us and thinking, Well, what's happening with their politics? Are they actually serious about supporting those fundamental institutions like the independence of the Bank of England? Corporation tax has gone down, promised to go up, promised to go down, it's coming up again. Who knows what's happening to corporation tax over the next few years? All of these things play in the mind of big companies looking at big investments around the world. The first thing they want is some kind of sense of stability of policy and politics. Now, a lot of that has been regained over the last few months. Whatever you think of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, we appear to have two parties at the moment, or two party leaders, who are more serious about that kind of stuff than perhaps we had a couple of years ago. I think that will help in the long run if we can maintain that. But the loss of confidence, I think, in competence of British politics may have quite long-term consequences for our living standards.
0: I think from the viewpoint from the world stage, it's still very much in people's minds, isn't it, that long-term politically last year was Friday, perhaps, because everything with having three prime ministers, four chancellors, it was very up and down. But can you see those building blocks you talk about beginning to take shape? And and is there that commitment now from all parties to try and stabilise the economy?
1: What we've seen since September with government under Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt has been a complete reversal of essentially near enough everything that was announced in that mini budget. That seems to have stabilised the markets. They now seem to see the government as rather more normal, shall we say. It's quite hard still to discern what Labour's economic policy is, but they're certainly doing everything they can to reassure people that they're serious about the public finances and inflation and so on, as well as wanting to improve public services and welfare. So all of that feels quite positive relative to where we were a few months ago. I guess the concerns remain that First of all, whilst we've got short-term stabilisation, it's very unclear what the long-term strategy of this government is. I mean, Rishi Sunak tried to set out his five priorities back in the beginning of January. Jeremy Hunt has recently given a speech on the economy, which said very little, but I think was mostly aimed at telling his backbenchers that he's not going to be having lots of big tax cuts in the next budget. We've got very little clarity, I think, either from this government or the Labour opposition, what actually their long-term sort of strategy for economic growth for industrial policy would be how we're going to respond, if at all, to the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which has given huge incentives for companies to invest, how we're going to respond to policies in the European Union, how we're going to respond to our own challenges around trade with the EU, How we are going to respond to increasing demands on spending on health and pensions in particular? So there are lots of big, difficult economic questions there, which, again, because a lot of the answers will be difficult and unpopular and involve trade-offs, the parties are just kind of skating around. And I fear we might see just kind of continued skating around until after the next election, when hopefully we'll have a government in power which feels that it's there for a period of time and is able to sketch that out more clearly.
0: And of course, we still hear Boris Johnson's voice on a very regular basis in the papers this weekend, putting pressure on the Chancellor to cut taxes to get the economy going, warning that if taxes aren't cut in the budget in March, that could cost them the next election. What do you think will happen with taxes? And do you think we will see them cut in the budget or not?
1: Well, the important thing about taxes at the moment, to, to recognise is that for a very long time, the tax burden, which is what we mean by the, the fraction of national income taken in taxes, has been pretty stable at around 33, 34% of national income. It's been pretty stable at that level for decades, actually, uh, remarkably stable. It looks like it's suddenly going to jump to something like 37% of national income. So that's a very, very big tax rise in the period between sort of 2021 2025 so that's a remarkable and historically remarkable change and though that reflects two things really one lack of economic growth which pushes the tax burden up or requires more tax to be taken from us to fund public services and of course big tax rises have been announced so the government has announced huge income tax rises by freezing the point at which you start to pay income tax, start to pay higher rate income tax for six years. So that's at least a £30 billion tax rise. It's a very big tax rise for companies through increases in corporation tax. So we have moved dramatically in terms of the scale of taxes in the UK just over the last couple of years. Is that going to come down? Well, before the next election, I would not be at all surprised if we get some announcement of some tax cut, whether that's something off the basic rate of income tax or some high-profile thing which makes it look like taxes are going down. But they're not going to be. Overall, taxes are going to be much higher come the next election than they were in the 2019 election. My projection is that this new high level of taxes is going to be here with us to stay. I can't see a world in which they get back down to where they've been for the last 40 years. And the reason for that is because, oh, it's partly because of lack of growth, but it's mostly because we are just spending more on health and we can see what's happening in the health service. That's going to have to continue, in my view, for the next many years. Population is ageing. Number of people over pension age is rising. And the demands on social care and other public services are very substantial into the future, not least after a decade of austerity, of very of spending cuts in some of those areas. To so put all of that together and looking into the medium term, I don't think we're going to get significant overall tax cuts relative to what we're currently planning before the next election, I'm sure there'll be some kind of headline tax cut. But as we and other miserable people will be pointing out, overall taxes will unquestionably be higher in 2024 <laughs> than they were in 2019.
0: Now, does that make you a grumpy economist? Because is that cakeism? if there is a sweet gesture offered in tax, i.e. is that having our cake and eating it?
1: I'm afraid it does make me a grumpy economist. But um, is
0: that cakeism? Is that an example <laughs> it, of cakeism? Well, if they offer yeah, a gesture. Yeah,
1: I, I think the idea that you can have tax cuts and that will grow the economy and everything will be fine, and you can have just as so much in the way of public services as you had before, but that's cakeism. It's kind of nonsense. It's all this stuff about not being willing to recognise there are trade offs. We can have lower taxes if. We're willing to accept american levels of public services for example or those in in some countries outside of western europe we can have lower taxes but it means worse public services and that is a decision that a lot of oecd countries make or we can have european levels of public services and welfare provision and that means higher taxes but of course what we get all of the time is politicians saying we can have below taxes and that high levels of public service and welfare provision i've said this so many times in my life you can't. <laughs> and that's a grumpy thing to have to say, but you know you have to
0: say it. You can't have your cake and eat it, You Can can't. as my nan used to say. <laughs> now I'm guessing that we are probably around the same age ballpark and I'm old enough to remember the 70s just and the winter of discontent. And now it does remind me when we see ambulance workers striking, nurses, teachers, it reminds me of that time really, which was quite a grim time. And I remember power cuts and candles and all sorts of things. It all seemed quite exciting when I was little. But (laughs) is there any resolution in sight, do you think, for public sector workers and fighting for more pay to survive? And just giving an example, my 13-year-old was listening to a podcast with a teacher the other day, and he was listening to it to try to understand why she's striking. And he was horrified to hear that she can only have the heat on for an hour a day. And she's got a one-year-old child and that child's wrapped in blankets the whole time. And it made him ask very deep questions over the tea table that I wasn't really able to answer. Will there be some resolution? What's the answer to public sector workers? And are we just going to be in a year of strikes and no resolution, do you think?
1: Was well, a lot in that. I mean, I, I, I too remember as a small child, the power cuts in the early 1970s, which were, as you say, I had to go around to my aunties because she had a gas stove and uh, there was still gas, but no electricity. And the days lost from strikes are still nothing like they were in the 70s. But it does feel partly because this is very focused on the public sector at the moment. But, you know, wh- why have we got these strikes? Well, you've got a combination of things going on here, I think. First, if you look at teachers and nurses and indeed civil servants. Before this increase in inflation, their wages have been held down over the last decade. So I said earlier that overall wages have been going really badly, barely increasing across the population since 2010, after you take account of inflation. In the public sector, they've fallen even before this year, because we've had periods of pay freezes over that period. And then on top of that, you've got average pay increases across the public sector of somewhere between three and 5%. With inflation at 10, you've got increases in the private sector of 7%. So again, you've got a cut in the buying power of public sector wages over this year on top of cuts over the last decade. And that puts them in a much worse position relative to the private sector compared with where they were. So, you know, it's not surprising. They're not terribly happy about this. It is important to be clear that whatever teachers and nurses may feel, they are not among the lowest paid. Teachers on 30,000, 40,000 a year are on average and above average salaries, so that these are not the lowest paid by any manner of means, but they have been for graduates or professionals. Having a decade of pay cuts is clearly difficult for them to manage, and it's going to be difficult in the long run to recruit people into professions which are less well paid than you can get elsewhere. So why are we in the position we are at the moment? The decisions on how much money that there would be to spend on health and education and so on were made 18 months ago in autumn 2021. Those decisions were made when the expectation was that inflation would only be maybe 3%. So if you stick to those spending decisions, there really isn't enough money in the pot to give pay rises which match inflation. So the choice the government then has is one of three things. It could decide to have higher pay rises, but take that money out of other things in schools and hospitals and so on. So to probably reduce the number of teachers, but give each teacher their more pay or or something along those lines, or to increase overall spending on these things and increase teacher pay. And that would require either more borrowing, which is already very high, or more taxes, as we've discussed, already very high. Or what they seem to be doing, which is digging their heels in and saying, we're not going to give you more pay rise. Now, it seems to me they're going to have to, both because you can't go, you know, I don't think the unions are going to back down because they've got a lot of support from their members and given what's been happening to their pay, that's understandable because in the long run, you can't just keep cutting pay because you will simply not be able to recruit people that you need. So I think the outcome will be some additional money. I'm surprised in a way that we haven't had any sense of progress yet after what feels like quite a few months of trouble. So I think the government will have to find some more money. I assume they'll find that in the next few months and then we'll have a negotiation and some kind of settlement. But inflation makes life difficult, particularly when that inflation is unexpected. And if in the long run we do have more pay in the public sector, again, I'm afraid, that will mean in the long run more taxes that the rest of us have to pay for it. And I suspect, again, that is inevitable.
0: Talking of inflation, I was looking back at some of your headlines in The Times over the last few months. We didn't see this coming because for 25 years, we thought we had inflation licked, was one of your headlines. Expound.
1: (laughs) Well, it's one of the things that we very often see things happening for a period of time and think that that's how the world is always going to be. So I remember very well, I used to work in the Treasury in the 2000s, and there was this incredible hubris about the economy at the time. We'd had a long period of growth. Um, Gordon Brown, then Chancellor, would often boast that we'd had the longest period of continuous growth in history. And people would talk about macroeconomics having been solved. And it was a ridiculous hubris. It was obviously ridiculous hubris at the time. And then you have the financial crash, which no one sort of expected because we'd had 20 years of growth or whatever we'd had. And there was a similar sort of feeling around inflation. Inflation has been relatively low for a long time, since the the mid-1990s, really, so for getting on for 30 years. And so I think no one saw it coming. And And yet, honestly, in autumn 2021, I think we should have seen it coming. And some people did. I mean, we'd thrown a wall of money at the economy through COVID, so huge amounts of money out there. We knew there were supply chain problems out in the rest of the world. And Andy Haldane, who was then one of the deputy governors at the Bank of England, was warning about that. And I was quite surprised that those warnings didn't get picked up. I think we have similar issues with interest rates. When interest rates were basically taken down to zero or near enough after the financial crisis, no one at the time expected them to stay there for very long. But as they stayed there year on year on year on year, gradually people came to expect that was normal to have interest rates at half a percent or something. Obviously, the, the mini budget accelerated this process. But again, it seems to have taken everyone by surprise that interest rates would ever go up to even the sort of relatively low levels they're currently at now. I hope to goodness they stay at, say, 3% and don't go back down to near enough zero because I think that's much better for the way the functioning of the economy. But I think we too easily lose a sense of history and a sense that economics changes over time. And again, it's like with strikes. I mean, we've had so long without serious strikes that we've sort of, I think, come to imagine that it wouldn't happen or couldn't happen again. But of course, these things can come round again. So things do change over time. And if you don't have that sort of sense of how things have changed over history or how things have changed in other countries, you become very complacent about, well, it's been like this for a decade. That's just the norm. Well, just because it's been like a decade, it isn't necessarily just the norm.
0: And even with your expertise and your finger daily on the economic pulse, are economists sometimes in that same boat that you feel comfortable in the, the way things are and perhaps don't always see things coming? Do you include yourself in that when you don't see something coming?
1: Oh, definitely don't see things coming. If we could predict anything vaguely, perfectly or much better, then life would be a much, much easier what we would say is you have to take account of this uncertainty. And too often, I think, not just politicians, but often big organisations kind of plan on an assumption that something's going to carry on, that sort of near collapse of pension funds after the mini budget was ridiculous because it reflected some decisions that had been made, which assumed that interest rates would never go up in the way that they did. Well, that's rather like the sort of bankers in 2008 saying it was a one in 50 billion year probability that something would happen. Well, it's was kind of just stupid thinking. So you just have to take account of the chances that things will change and have economies and policies which are vaguely resilient to those kinds of things. And I don't think we're very good at that.
0: I think it's made us as individuals perhaps a little bit more cautious as well. I look back and think, oh my God, why did I not fix my mortgage rate, for example? And I thought they'd be low forever and didn't bother to do that. So I think there's a caution as individuals as well as perhaps companies now that we've been through. Speaking to um, to
1: someone who bought a house last year, um, (laughs) (laughs) we all make bad mistakes. Oh,
0: cross. (laughs) When I was looking back through your headlines, the other one that jumped out at me is a very recent one actually from December. It's not only the NHS in trouble. The whole nation is getting sicker. Mm. And this weekend, I was reading about rail chiefs have been warning about more disruption due to high levels of sickness among drivers. Are we an ailing society? Is our health getting a lot worse?
1: Well, it seems to be. There's some statistics here which it's hard to argue with. I mean, we're just dying. Tens of thousands of us are dying more than you'd normally expect. I don't really understand why there aren't bigger headlines about that. You can find that sort of thing buried in the inside pages. But last year we had, outside of COVID years, more excess deaths than we've had in, I don't know about ever, but certainly in a very long time. So that sort of headline number is is obviously worrying. But if you look at the sort of less terminal (laughs) data, we've had a doubling, literally a doubling in a year in the number of people applying for and being awarded disability benefits. Now that's extraordinary. We've never seen anything like that before. If you look at sort of surveys of what people say about their own health, That's been getting worse as well. And this appears to be true across the age range as well. So we've got a big increase in mental ill health problems among younger people and a big increase in physical ill health problems among older people, at least from what one can see in the data and certainly looking at these disability benefits statistics. So one of the things we see in hospitals is that people are staying in hospital much longer than they used to. Now, that may be partly to do with not being able to get out into social care, but it may also be down to the fact that people are in hospital are sicker. Now, all of this may be there's lots of maybes in this because I don't think we know the answer. Consequence of COVID and people not having medical treatment then, there may be some lingering mental well being problems as a result of lockdowns and so on. some significant evidence that there's quite a lot of long COVID around. So over the last couple of years, it does look like we've got significantly sicker. I think there are other long-term issues around health. More of us have multiple chronic problems associated with lifestyle issues, obesity, and so on. And there are other issues here as well. I mean, more premature births and more children living longer than they would have in the past. We've got quite a lot of adults in long-term social care the problem of young people's mental health as being one that's been growing over a period of time. So there's all sorts of issues here about population health, as well as everything that we're, worrying about what's going on in the health service.
0: Interesting there you touched on mental health. The cost of living crisis, presumably that will impact massively on people's mental health and young people's mental health with the jobs market and what are they going to do when they leave school or leave university. How is mental health something that your teams look into here when you're doing your research?
1: For us, it always depends on the data. So we've got, we've got data on disability benefit receipt which is particularly young people jumped as mental health problems and we also have data where people are asked the same question year on year about their their, their mental health status and as I said there's been some evidence of that getting worse over time for younger people there was a huge problem of mental health for young people during the pandemic you see a really sharp rise in people reporting problems there and much more concentrated among the young than among from our older groups now. For most, that's jumped back to sort of the previous trend, but there's clearly a group who have been left behind on that, who have continued to have problems. And then, the, I guess the, the the group who are particularly worrying are those who are currently in school because they've had a very interrupted school career, and there is quite a lot of I wouldn't say it's yet completely solid evidence, but I think it's there's it enough for us to say that there's been a increase in mental health problems there, and a reduction in resilience for that generation. I would say, though, for those who have moved into the labour market, for those who started work in 2020 and 2021, the labour market is actually really good at the moment. I mean, there's huge numbers of jobs and vacancies. Unlike other recessions, there doesn't seem yet, at least, to have been a long-term impact on the wages and job quality of people who moved into the labour market in 2020. So if you moved into the labour market in 2009, you had a problem. And on average, people were doing worse for quite a long time after that because they moved in during a recession. That doesn't seem to be the case among people who moved into the labour market in 2020 because there just so many so many jobs out there. And actually, nowadays, for younger people joining the labour market, the way to get on is not so much as it used to be to join a company and move your way up it's now to join somewhere and move out and up and out and up. And you can see it's very clearly in the data that actually moving between jobs is the best way to improve your pay and prospects. And there's been a lot more moving between jobs in the last couple of years because there's been so many
0: vacancies around. It's interesting. It's what Adam Kingle, an academic, was saying on the podcast the other week. We were talking about, he specialized in looking at the generations and he was talking about what Gen Ys are looking for. And they're not looking for like my parents, 40 years in a job and a gold carriage clock at the end. They're looking for career development and. He was saying that the way to stop them moving from A to B is to offer that career development and that flexibility in working, which is one of the, it's nice to talk about some positives. It is one of the positives of the pandemic, isn't it? Hybrid working now, and they're not looking for a nine to five job in an office all the time. So it's interesting from his studies, you're absolutely right. People are tending to move from place to place, and he was saying that the smart employers are finding ways then to bring those people back that have started off life with them. They're looking for a lot more, aren't they, the younger generation?
1: People have always said that about new generations and that we've moved from you know the 40 years in one place to moving around a lot. And, and there is certainly some of that in terms of that being the way up. I don't know what the evidence is on the benefits of hybrid working in the long run. I worry a bit that, take my colleagues here, they are making fewer networks and connections than I did at that age, because they're in the office a little bit less, not that much less, but a lot of the, where I would have been going to meetings or conferences or seminars, they're sitting in front of the Zoom screen. And actually, it's an incredibly important part of working life is to get to know people in your sector and build networks and so on. I worry a little bit that there might be a group of younger people who are saying, this is wonderful, I can stay at home and so on, and actually in the end damage their career. Now, I don't know whether that's true, but it's certainly something that I'm concerned about.
0: Paul, what inspired you to become an economist, and and what's your background?
1: I just always happened as a nerdy child to be interested in politics and policy and and so on, I guess. And actually, I applied to lots of universities to do politics, having done science and maths and so on at A-level, because I was just really interested in it, and then somehow got into Oxford to do PPE, as everyone seems to have done, from a school which hardly ever sent anyone to not much to university, let alone to Oxbridge. And then after a year, I found the politics just incredibly boring. (laughs) 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 And and the economics much more sort of rigorous and intellectually stimulating, I suppose, and really trying to answer some of the questions that I I was interested in. And I was actually incredibly fortunate then to get a job here at the IFS straight out of university and then move on to work in the Treasury and and, um, Education Department and elsewhere before coming back here. As director, but I'm very lucky in a sense that I work on stuff that I just find incredibly interesting. I think I have found my niche in life.
0: Were you quite nerdy as a child? Were you head buried in books or or the news? Or
1: yes, I was. I was very much focused on my schoolwork and, and and reading and, and so on. Partly as a way of escaping from stuff which wasn't much fun in my childhood. So that I, I found that way of escape. My brother found other ways which were rather more rebellious and, um, <laughs> and didn't result in a similar career at all. Oh,
0: and you live in a very male household, I gather.
1: Uh, well, n- not anymore. Oh, um,
0: you've got four sons, though, haven't you? I've got four yeah. sons, yes. Wow, amazing. Um, I've
1: got four sons aged between... 20 and
0: 25. Any of them followed in your footsteps into this world?
1: Well, the oldest one actually studied economics and is now a professional economist. The other three, not so much.
0: Oh, that must make you proud, isn't it, that somebody's followed in your footsteps?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I'm proud of all of them, absolutely. It was quite a surprise. I didn't particularly expect him to study economics. He didn't do A-level economics, but he made that decision to go... To university to do it and has ended up doing it professionally.
0: Fantastic. Well, my daughter's doing economics at university in her first year, and I can see just how gripped she is with the whole subject. And of course, what a time to be doing economics. There's so much going on at the minute. There's so much food for thought, isn't there, at the moment to inform her of what's going on in the world right now. I can understand why she's finding the current situation very fascinating, as well as looking back, obviously, over the decades and putting it all into context and see what's been happening. What are your hopes? Paul, for 2023, if we're sitting here, I know you're not looking into a crystal ball, but if we were talking in a year's time, what are your hopes for the economy and perhaps some more stability in it?
1: Well, certainly some stability would be nice. The most important thing is that inflation comes down over the next year and comes down fairly dramatically. Bank of England the Prime Minister are talking about inflation getting down but halving by the end of the year. That's still not a triumph and that'll still be two and a half, three times higher than Bank of England's target And core inflation, which excludes things like energy and and food, is still pretty high. So I think there are worries here, particularly because earnings are going up by 7% in the private sector. Getting inflation under control has to be an absolute priority. We need to obviously sort out the industrial relations problems in the public sector, and that's going to need some flexibility from government. I think that's fairly clear. I'm slightly concerned that we are in this kind of holding pattern now for a couple of years before the next election. I I assume we'll have an election in autumn 2024, but it could be as late as January 2025. The government doesn't feel like it's following any very clear long-term strategy, partly because it doesn't see necessarily a long-term future. But from both main parties is the centrality of economic growth to their programmes – this trust was right in one sense. I mean, she went about it in a completely candid way, but she was right that we have not had enough focus on economic growth over the last long period, partly because, as I said right at the beginning, there are trade-offs here, and the trade-offs have always been for things that have been anti-growth, so not doing planning reform, leaving the European Union and so on. These things, there may be reasons for them, but they are bad for growth, and actually growth is vital. If we're going to feel better, become better off, people on low incomes are going to see their incomes rise, the teacher you referred to has a better life going forward, that has to be higher up the agenda, at the top of the agenda, I think, for the government and the opposition.
0: Thank you so much, Paul. It's been lovely coming to your IFS offices here in central London and uh, talking about the economy. As you can probably tell, I'm (laughs) an expert on the economy. So it's been a real pleasure to trot through lots of different subjects and hear your views rather than switching on my radio and uh, (laughs) hearing what you think or opening the times. It's been really nice. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been fun. You've been listening to economist Paul Johnson, director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies in London. It's been great hearing about our economy from a totally independent voice and has certainly left me with much food for thought. Don't forget, if you want to hear more of Paul's thoughts, then check out his column in The Times. Download our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another great guest. Bye for now.